what matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Actress, director, producer, founder of child advocacy, non-for-profit Adopt Change, the wonderful Deborah Lee Finesse is our guest today on Short Black. Welcome, Deb. Sandra, so nice to be here. Me in New York and you there. I know. This is the world now. We're all doing this. Thank God for technology. Yes, I know. What 8.30 p.m. in New York for you. You're at the epicentre of COVID and we're all isolated. How are you coping? It's so weird, you know, because I I was in the middle of directing Neighbours when we got the call, the show was shut down and we had to get back or we might have been locked out of home. So we had to jump on a plane so quickly and fly back into the epicentre, which doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, but it is home. But strangely, I feel, you know, we've just hunkered down like everyone else. We've got our masks, we've got our gloves. We're in our house. we're We're staying at home. We walk the dogs. Obviously, it's heartbreaking. I tune into Governor Cuomo every, every day, who's doing an amazing job of, you know, telling everyone what's going on and listen to these horror stories of how many people are affected, the economics for some people. There are so many heartbreaking stories, but we've just, to me, this whole thing is Mother Nature has sent us all a huge wake-up call. So it's been a huge awakening for me. Is it scary on the streets of New York right now? No, well, strangely, like I looked out today, today happened to be, no, it was yesterday. It was a beautiful sunny day and I looked out and there's like people walking along the West Side Highway. I mean, everyone's social distancing, but it's like, it's strange. I've lived here for so many years. I walk now when I take the dogs out and I say hello to a man who's been walking his dog for like, he's a dog walker for like five years. And this is the first time I spoke to him and he's this interesting war vet and told me his story, told me how he feels about this whole pandemic. And I'm noticing things I've never seen. It's sort of brought community together. There's a, a thing about New Yorkers, they really, you know, create community and are there for each other. So it's felt very comforting, strangely enough. Yeah, I feel like we're all digging in and it's simplifying our life. I suspect when we wake up out of this nightmare, we're not going to want to rush back to the madness of our life before. Well, it's never going to be like it was before. I think we've shifted, the world shifted. I follow a woman who's a Kabbalist teacher and she was on Instagram the other day and she just said, what are you talking about? Everyone's saying, I'm on a pause. I'm, the world has stopped. We're on a pause button. She goes, the seasons are still changing. The trees are still blossoming. The waves are still turning. This is a different moment. Live in this moment. Take advantage of this moment and just be still. And I've noticed that, you know, and especially New Yorkers, we're all A-type personalities, you know, like <laughs> we've got to be productive. We're doing this. I'm doing that. What are you doing? Da, da, da. And all of a sudden, these A-type personalities have ground to a halt, but it is making us really sit and just be. And I have to say, it's been great for family time. We're connecting with teenagers because I'm sure, as you're aware, that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> you know, we have great <laughs> conversations and I, I just feel we've got to be positive about this experience. We've got to reach out. We've got to be, you know, do what we can from where we are. I've always thought you're a glass half full type woman and you're looking for the positive. You've just said that that's who you are. As a family, what sort of new things have you learned? Like I remember one day talking to, and I'm not name dropping, but I was talking to you and Hugh with my husband. He did tell me that he's the cook and, you know, Simon's the cook in my place. You know, have you taken up baking or something? No, no. He's the baker, I'm the cook. Oh, he's the baker. No, because my personality is I can't follow recipes. To me, it's like Ikea instructions. 
it's boring as details. When I cook, like my kids say, mum, you make so much mess. Because I'm very, it's like when I paint, I'm creative. I throw a bit of this and maybe a bit of that. And I never know where I start and where I finish. Hugh is much more linear. He likes a recipe. He likes that. And his new passion happens to be bread baking right at a time when I'm on a carb-free diet. <laughs> I wake up to smell of this beautiful bread every morning. And that's another thing. Like, you know, where's our food chain? I, it's made me really aware. Where's our food chain source coming from? You know, I don't want to buy processed bread anymore. I want to come back to more natural way of living. So I love that he's baking bread every morning. Yeah, keep him in the kitchen. That's where he belongs. <laughs> <laughs> this whole isolation thing, though, does make it difficult because you guys are social. That's who you are. How are you staying connected? What tools are you using to connect with family and friends? Because we can't really leave home other than walk the dog. I know, it's true. I'm much more social than Hugh. Hugh's very happy not being social. So it's trickier for me, but um, a girlfriend's organized a weekly Zoom call where we, you know, talk about the world and how we, more about how we're feeling. Like in the group, there are a lot of women that are on their own. And I think it's much harder for people who are isolating and they're solo. So it's a great opportunity for them to be able to make connection because they're alone. So we get together and try and change the world that way. And my Australian gang, you know, like I've got a whole, my whole gang down there, we've formed this group of a thing and we all these you know funny uh stories and memes and things are coming through so we're sending each other funny things or inspirational stories so I strangely feel closer to everyone it's made me realize what are the priorities are and the priorities are our family and being together and I tell you there's no time in the day because it's like literally Hugh's ironing I'm doing the laundry we're cooking dinner I've got a 14 year old online who wants snacks like every 10 minutes I'm like a short order cook (laughs) you know we've been spoiled we've had a housekeeper that's helped us whatever we're doing everything but you're making time aren't you you're making time for family and friends yeah and the kids like okay you sweep the floors you you, you're part of this you've got to do this and it's great you know for them to realize this is how you survive and look after yourself I did notice on Instagram the other week you know it's forcing us all to be ingenious but Hugh's clearly always been a fitness freak. So he found the stairs in your apartment block as his, his go-to workout. He's got more fitness things. He's up and down the stairs. He's got a rowing machine. He does dance classes on, you know, Zoom. It's like it showed me a whole new world. I have private, tra- my trainer, you know, Zooms in. My Pilates teacher Zooms in. I do online classes. It's so bizarre. Strangely, you know, like at 7 o'clock at night, I think it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it's just like, Everything just seems to be going faster and yet there's more more freedom. It's a very bizarre thing. Yeah, it's upended our whole world. I mean, look, we were meant to catch up when you were in Australia yeah. working on The Neighbours piece. Tell us about how all that came about. It's pretty exciting. That was so awesome. Jason Herbison, who's the producer, reached out to me. He does happen to have an adopted daughter. And I love Jason. Like Neighbours, it's like, what, it's 35th year? Can you believe it? It's like the longest running soap opera. But they always highlight like uh, the outliers and the the sort of minority groups and cover stories through these characters that are known and beloved. And that's what I love was that I got the opportunity to tell the story of what it's like for a foster child and what it's like for the foster parents fostering the child through characters that are known. So it makes it more personal rather than, you know, sitting on a panel and talking about the issues and the problems. Like you just see the reality of what it is. And I think, you know, my my actors I work with, Matt and Takaya, who play Aaron and David, was I think they really stepped up because they knew it was a a big responsibility to represent this issue well. And we were fortunate to have a lot of time for rehearsals to really get right. 
Ezra played the young foster child. The boy was being fostered and he was great. And we nuanced the whole thing with the writers. You know, I worked with um, the writers there and Natalie Lynch and Kate Bradley. And I had a mentor director, Kate Kendall, who was awesome. Because literally in a soap opera, I don't know if you're aware, it moves so fast. I'm used to film where you can spend your time on a beat in a moment. This is like you got to get your shots, you got to tell the story, get the performance and move it on. It just keeps going. So it was um, a little frightening and a little exciting and a little thrilling. <laughs> Clearly a great challenge, but something that is a personal passion for you. It's bizarre when I think about it, and it's ever the case with adoption. You know, Neighbours has been going for 35 years and finally we've got a story, no criticism of Neighbours, but adoption's just off the radar for so many people and yet it is so important. But you know what, but it was off the radar. Like I sort of got into this, what, about a decade ago that Adopt changed, we founded it and got it up and running. But there was an anti-adoption culture for so long in Australia and it was a small subdivision of child services. So there was no attention given to it and it has taken us 10 years to even get awareness to get attention of this situation and now we finally have parliamentary friends of adoption and we need to make have more politicians on board I mean just to give you the stats there's 45,000 children that are in foster care three quarters of those kids are unlikely to ever return to home so they're just going to keep going through the system and and the stats have the more shifts and the more changes these kids have the more challenges they're going to end up with homelessness, with um, drug abuse, getting into prostitution, mental health. I mean, it's just diabolical. So I can't understand. I stand here and go, children's issues have to be, why aren't they at the forefront? And it's about permanency. It's not just going through the foster system and finding another home, another home. You know, if it's adoption, if it's permanent placement, permanency is what it is. I always think, imagine this kid, you'll see it in neighbours. He rocks up, he's got a plastic bag of his belonging. He's got two gay guys that are adopting him and he doesn't know them. Can you imagine what that's like, just always showing up in a strange home? Let alone being young and so vulnerable. And so vulnerable and, and traumatised. Any child that's separated from their birth family or having been abandoned is dealing with trauma as well. So and that's what Adopt Change. I'm thrilled that New South Wales were the first state to have a support system. We have, we're training carers, a support system for adoptees that they can ring in. Now at this time during COVID, I know they have a lounge space where parents and carers can call up and support each other. And, you know, and as I said, during COVID, for so many people in domestic violence, it's going to increase. And that's for obviously people who adults and children. So, and it's hard for social workers to be aware of what's going on. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty tough situation. The stumbling block historically in Australia was twofold, really, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of the stolen generation and then child trafficking. Those two issues kind of prevented adoption from taking off in the way it should have. We all know there are so many people who have so much love to give, so many people who can't have children through circumstance or genetics or biology, whatever it may be, and it's a no-brainer to you and me that these children need love and care and there are plenty of people who want to offer love and care and yet the system prevents it. Yeah, because I think it's a broken system. But I have to say, like when I hear this, and I've spoken to an Aboriginal elder about this, and she goes, Deborah, it's nothing to do with the stolen generation. And I've always said that adoption is nothing to do with the stolen generation. The stolen generation was theft. It was this bad ideology. It was nothing to do with adoption. And it really makes me mad when people say, oh, adoption, you're going to create another stolen generation. No, it's not. It's nothing to do with that. And I go back to, from my understanding, 
to the 50s, 60s, 70s, state and church, you know, were sort of all over young women who were falling pregnant. And in those times, it was culturally not okay to be pregnant out of wedlock. And they were forced to relinquish their kids. So their kids were taken away from them a lot of times without them wanting it. And a lot of these mothers were traumatized ongoing for life, having traversed that. And I think they were within the system because they were so badly hurt. There was no support, no care. So I think they saw adoption as a terrible thing. And I think there are people that work within the system, even like Vietnamese adoptees or Asian adoptees that came over, weren't given any supports, how to traverse being in Bendigo with the brother with freckles and they look in the mirror and they're Asian. And, and the cultural piece, you cannot do ethical adoption or permanent placement without having a support system in place for life. These kids are traumatized. Bottom line, they've been through a trauma and you have to have support ongoing and help the carers that are going to care for them and the kids themselves. And that's what we've created in New South Wales. And I hope every state follows suit. So, yeah. As you say, 45,000 kids who need permanent placement. And while that sounds scary for the system, for those that may be listening, really, it's about just offering love and care for someone who needs it. And look, I understand it's a big undertaking, but there are people out there that I know are wanting to do this. And, you know, that's why we're always looking for people who want to be carers, to be trained up. People can help in many different ways, mentoring. And I want to see the kids that age out of foster care. I mean, I don't know about you, my 18-year-old is not ready to go out into the world at 18, but the kids age out of foster (laughs) care and they're sort of like, okay, no support, where do they go? I would love to see corporates putting internships or mentorships in place as part of their business plan. So that's why I go out to the pollies to sort of go, guys, this isn't going to shift. We're not going to get better unless we put creativity and energy into finding solutions. And this is a global problem. I get it. And I hate that I, I haven't got the answers, but, you know, we hold summits every year, get the smartest people in to discuss it, try to come up with ideas. So I put it out there to, all, you know, any pollies out there that this issue touches them to reach out to Adopt Change and back us and support us and put on the agenda, get creative. Well, you know, you're preaching to the converted here. You know that I'm a mother of an adopted daughter, but I'm not sure if you recall, our connections actually go back to the beginning of Adopt Change. And, you know, your life's busy and you come in contact with so many people. But when you set up Adopt Change, my husband sponsored your first summit. It was actually at the Combank. And I interviewed you on stage with your first corporate support. Yes, that's right. It was our first thing. It was so scary stepping out on the stage. You know, okay, this is not okay, guys. I know. But he was so passionate because our daughter's adopted, you know, from Indonesia at five days of age. Yeah. And we've spoken a few times about it and look, It's just so important that you champion the cause. People listen to you when you talk. Yeah, and I think people just see the reality of what it is and they want to help. I mean, literally, if you saw a three-year-old walking down the street on their own, would you just walk past? No, you wouldn't. No. People want to help. They want to do something. One day we spoke about adopted children and you said to me something that's always stuck with me and that is that there is an innate fear of rejection at their very core Mm -hmm. and so their nurturing needs to be very unique and that needs to be understood from anyone that takes on that child you still feel that way yeah no 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 100 percent. as I said to you any child that is separated from birth family it is a trauma it's an abandonment they call it a primal wound We all have wounds from our childhood. We're all, I think all of us are still working out our issues we learned from zero to five. And we spend the rest of our life sort of playing out whatever happened in that time. But especially with adopted children, they start with abandonment in that they should trust in in family. It was not there. 
they they can't justify if it was a war and you know their parents died it's just they weren't there so i think there is definitely a greater sensitivity for adopted children that's why we have the support for carers to understand like i always say this you know if you see bad behavior in in a person i always go to they're hurting we've all got baggage haven't we and if you don't deal with it you just carry it your whole life Absolutely. But this is just an extra layer. And yes, it does take a different understanding. Like I remember, okay, this, the first woman I met who was just so great, she came and spoke at one of my summits. And she said, with an adopted child, she said, don't give them a time out, give them a time in. Because the time out is you, you're sending them away, you're shaming them, you're shaming them that they've been naughty. And these kids carry a shame innately anyway. And so by giving a time in, first of all, it's annoying, you've got to sit there with your parent. But then you give them the opportunity after they've sat, how do you think you could have handled that situation better? And then they come up with an idea and you go, high five, great job. So they leave with a greater sense of self-esteem. I just always thought that was such great advice. Yeah. It's funny though, I have to say, my daughter, we're watching shows and there'll be children abandoned or, you know, whatever may be the scenario that's playing out in the drama we're watching. And she goes, what is wrong with people? Just adopt them. (laughs) Just give them a new life. <laughs> you know, I mean, all kids have hang-ups. All adults have hang-ups. But when I hear that, I just love that she's just so accepting because for her it's it's all she's ever known. Yeah, my daughter's got a very black humour and she, yes, she, she makes quite a few jokes about it too. <laughs> so Oscar's now 19, Ava 14. Yeah. You're the mother of all teenagers yeah it's a nightmare isn't it well it's just you know what what a learning curve yeah you know me glass half full I'm always looking at even when it's challenging I'm like okay this is my challenge this is my opportunity even when I'm really pissy or whatever this is my opportunity how to handle this situation with grace I think they are the greatest teachers because they push every button and they know how to play you like a Stradivarius <laughs> mine can like just go straight in and I'm reactive so, you know, Q sometimes says my three children because uh, I'm just reactive, but I'm getting better. But no, so I, I find it my greatest challenge and my greatest teacher, to be honest. Well, we've had a couple of funny moments over the years and one was, I don't know, probably four or five years ago and you were in Australia, Hugh was filming Wolverine and Ava was at the same school as my daughter and they're both doing gymnastics. I don't know if I've ever told you this story. One Saturday morning, they're at gymnastics training, and Mia had said, can you guys come and watch me? You always drop me off and go and do things, and I want you to watch me. Okay. So I drop Simon and Mia off, and I go and park the car, and I come back, and Simon is talking to, I knew it was Hugh, and they're chatting away, and there's a couple of other mothers kind of, you know, giggling because Hugh was there. And I just went, oh, hi, Hugh. And he looked, Simon looked at me quizzically as if to say, how do you know who, who he is? I'm just talking to this guy. I knew Hugh maybe thought I looked familiar, but he wasn't sure. And I just said, oh, hi, you know, how's Deb? I didn't want to pretend I didn't know who he was. Anyway, we wrap up the chat and I just said, oh, Hugh, you know, Sandra from Channel 10, blah, blah, blah. No big deal. We walked down and Simon said, how do you know that guy? And I went, Simon, that's Hugh Jackman. (laughs) Didn't he work out the Wolverine sideburns? And he said, I had no idea. Well, that's Hugh too. He's vague as half the time doesn't know who's talking to you. Just shut away. (laughs) Yeah, that's lovely. It's, I, and I do remember them playing in the playground. Yes, I do. I know. Too funny. 
So I read that you turned down a chance to party with Sir Mick Jagger in favour of going out on your first date with Hugh. Is that true? It is a little bit true, but it's hilarious. (laughs) Everyone thinks, oh my God, the chance to go party. And he, uh, it was some friends going out to party and they said, come join. But the truth is, I don't even like rock and roll. And I was having such a great time with Hugh. It didn't really matter. But this came out again because he was on Jimmy Fallon the other night where now he's sort of doing it from his kitchen with his kids crawling all over him. And I happened to be in the kitchen. I know Jimmy and I just said it was talking to Jimmy and then he mentioned that story. And I thought this was before <laughs> they'd started filming and then we were watching it that night. I'm like, what am I doing on the Jimmy Fallon show? <laughs> and so, anyway, but that story is hilarious and, yes, it's been brought up over the years. Too funny. It's a good story. I mean, you know, it's only Mick Jagger, don't worry. I end up meeting Mick in London because I cast his girlfriend at the time in the short film that I made in London and she played me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the circles just keep shrinking, don't they, in life? You know, it's that six degrees of separation. It's so true. Totally. How much longer do you think you're going to be in New York? Have you got plans to visit when you can? What's the immediate future for you guys outside of COVID? Well, so everyone keeps asking, but who knows? Well, the thing is, we're not going to be able to travel for a while because as soon as Broadway, Hugh's already signed up for a year on Broadway. What's he doing? In the Music Man. Oh. You hadn't heard, Sandra? You didn't get the memo? I didn't get the memo. He's, <laughs> he's doing the Music Man, which was supposed to open in October. I mean, they've already sold you know millions of dollars of tickets and whatever. So it just depends when the world sort of opens up again. And I said it to Hugh, I said, well, when are we going to get to Australia? And it just sort of feels weird. We don't know, but I'm just sort of going with it. You know, like it's like, okay, you just got to be here right here right now and see what happens. And, you know, I'm getting creative and he's getting creative. We're doing a lot of reading and listening to podcasts and there are some great podcasts out there. And Tell me, which ones do you like? I love Brene Brown. Do you know Brene Brown? No. Oh, you. Tell me about it. She is a researcher. She's a professor and she studies emotions. She's got two TED Talks that I first saw, one on shame and one on vulnerability. And they're both brilliant. And she's just an an HBO special. Anyway, she had Russell Brand. He is amazing. He's very sharp, isn't he? He's so sharp. Anyway, the two of them together was just a little bit of magic. So I follow Russell. He was in Australia recently because I'm the patron for the 16th Street Studio in Melbourne, the Actors Centre, and he actually came out and spoke, did a whole afternoon class for the for the kids there. He talks about addiction, but he also just talks about life, and he's amazing. Anyway, Brene Brown and Russell Brand both have their own podcast, and um, you and I have been reading A Clear and Bright Future, which is so cerebral and so over our heads, but it's basically by the title, I'm hoping that the future is bright, but it talks about, you know, the political, ideological and philosophical way of over the past few centuries, how we got where we are and where we're going to now, inclusive of artificial intelligence and all the ethics involved with that. So half the stuff I have to read three times in here and I go, what does that mean? What does this mean? It's fascinating anyway. But it's good mind fodder. It sort of stretches you. Yeah. Yeah. One I'm really enjoying, I have to say, and I'm curious what your thoughts might be, Alec Baldwin's Here's the Thing. Have you listened to those? Yes, a few of them, and he's the nicest. You know what? When the fires happened in Australia, guess who was the first person to email you and I? Alec Baldwin said, okay, let's do it. We've got to do something for this. What, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? He was the first one to put his hand up to want to do something for the fires. One really critical issue at the moment, Deb, is as Australia's coming to grips with COVID and the economic fallout's going to be profound globally, but here a significant impact is on the arts community and they're really struggling here. 
really, really struggling. Have you got friends reaching out to you about it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we've been trying to support several groups down there and here in America as well. Oh, no, the arts. I mean, there's a great plan put in place, I know, for a lot of the dancers are on Hugh's show. The Actors Fund has is giving them a, a weekly allowances. But the arts, I know, you know, to me that's an essential service, frankly, because that's what makes our heart sing and gives us joy. But I see what I see is so many of my friends who are singers or whatever, they're all on Instagram still entertaining because it's in their heart, so they're putting out there. But you're right, the economic fallout of this thing is going to be huge for so many. And, you know, people say, when do we get back to normal? I don't think we're going to go back to that normal. I think it's a new normal because we got ourselves here and we're in a pickle, so we've got to think, how do we make this a better planet? And what can we learn from it? To me, we've got to look at the ethical way of how we deal with everything, you know, with other human beings, with nature, like even the way, you know, our food supply. Where does it come from? Where are the sources, like the fashion industry, you know, the seamstresses in Bangladesh that we're taking advantage? It, it's so run by the markets and commerce. And I think we've sort of lost a bit of our humanity. And that's why I feel this in a strange way is like Mother Nature really bring us back. I've spoken to so many people who say they're really feeling different now. They've stopped. They're reassessing their lives. They're making big choices, career changes, because they've had time to stop the habitual just daily productivity. We're so driven, you know, got to produce, got to produce. We're on the treadmill, aren't we? And it's forced us to rethink what we do and how we do it. Yeah. And, and I got this great piece the other day that said, just be. You don't have to, during this time, you don't have to start the best podcast. You don't have to write the best selling novel. Just by being is enough. And I think if we all stop and reevaluate, that energy will have a ripple effect and it will affect us all from family to friends to community to the greater world. So I just think we've got to rethink how we got here. At your very core, you're a humanitarian and passionate about the vulnerability of others. Yes, children through adopt change. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the Neighbours episode. And it's so generous of you to to get involved and to promote the cause through another platform, which which is global. Neighbours <laughs> Neighbours is global. It was exciting for me. I mean, I want to be a director when I grow up. So, yeah, I'm still – I love the creative process and getting back working with actors again. That was like such a turn on just sort of just – creating. I love creating, whether it's cooking, painting, acting, directing. I just love it. Speaking of acting, you did enlist one of Australia's all-time favourite actors, apart from you two, the gorgeous Jack Thompson, into the Adopt Change family as an ambassador. He's been really strategic and helpful and such a powerful voice in the space, hasn't he? He has been with us for years. He backed us from the early days. He's hung in there. He's championed it. He's just a gorgeous man. I know he had some health issues recently. I hope he's doing okay. For those that don't know, can you tell us his backstory and his connection with adoption? Well, he was in effect adopted by a family. I don't know the facts with his birth family, but I do know that he was taken in by another family. So in essence, he was adopted by them and brought up by them. And it was the Thompson family in Sydney, Peter Thompson, the arts critic and journalist who was his brother. Yeah. Isn't that wild? You just never know where life's going to take you. I know. And like everyone's got a story. When I first started speaking out, it it was such a knee-jerk reaction to me because it was like, why is this so hard? I mean, that's what got me in. I was like, I'm just a justice freak. I just thought, this is so wrong. I don't get it. And that's why I just started asking questions. When I started doing, you know, press and things, every journalist was like, oh, I've got an adopted sister. My mother's adopted this. The demographic around this issue 
is so much bigger than we're aware of because there's no numbers on it, there's no data on it, and it's so much bigger than we know. In the beginning, there was such a stigma attached, and that's what I I really wanted to get rid of because even like I'd be in the park with my son who's biracial and um, someone would say, oh, is he adopted? And whisper it. If you whisper something, it's like it's a secret, like there's shame around it. Like, yeah, he's adopted. Like, it's like take the stigma away, you know, there was a stigma that these kids had to carry, that there was some shame involved. And they carried on like the parents' shame. It was generational. And it's like, guys, this is the journey. This is their journey that they're on and get rid of that stigma. A lot of people were scared to talk about it. And we just wanted to put it on the table. Like, that's it. Okay, that's my story. Well, you've shattered a lot of those preconceptions. I mean, your child's biracial, me is Indonesian. Clearly, Simon and I are very Caucasian. But when she was very little, exactly, we'd walk down the street and she'd say, why are people staring at me? Yeah. And after a while, I used to joke and say, they're not, they're staring at me, honey. But I was trying to take the focus off her so that it wasn't just all about her. But people were too scared and there was the whisper, oh, you know, and the sadness, oh, you couldn't have children. Well, A, don't assume what you don't know. Yeah, I was in the park when they was going and they said, oh, his father must be very dark. And I said, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> she just looked at me. You have to love, love it. Well, our favourite justice freak, Deborah Lee Finesse, you're a superstar. We love what you do. Thank you so much for everything you do in the Adopt Change space. I'd like to say we empathise for you being locked up with Hugh Jackman, but we don't really. We don't because that's hardly a torment. But for giving up your time on the other side of the world, Deborah Lee Finesse, thanks so much for your time. Sandra, thank you, darling, and thanks for all your support for so long. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. If you care about adoption and want to be involved, just go to the website, adoptchange.org.au. See you next time. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. 10 Speaks' latest podcast, 10 News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country, stories that matter from journalists with passion. I'm Rolda Jacobs, and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find 10 News First Person on the 10 Speaks page on 10 Play or wherever you listen to podcasts.